Morning, brothers and sisters. We have a lot to be celebrating with the birth of our King and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's a gift that we are still trying to unpack um, as far as understanding what it means for us in our lives. The gospel of Christ. We are in Nehemiah today, Nehemiah 5. And if you remember from last time, Nehemiah in chapter 4, they had had to deal with the opposition from outside the camp. And they had enemies outside the camp on all sides. They ended up having to build the wall while they carried a weapon in one hand and did the work in the other. Today we're looking at Nehemiah 5 and we're going to be seeing a situation in which now we don't have opposition from without, we have opposition from within the camp. Back in the spring of 1981, I was playing with the basketball team Athletes in Action and we took a European trip. And so we found ourselves in France and we went in behind the Iron Curtain. Yes, the Iron Curtain was still there when we got there, uh, into Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And we found ourselves in a tournament in Czechoslovakia and we were playing the Russian national team, which was obviously a formidable foe. And the Man, I was playing against, his name was Valdemir Kachinko. He was 7'4", about 325 to 350 pounds, depending on the day. Uh, he had these huge hands. And my memory of that game was summed up in one event. The shot went up, I went to block him off from the board, and I felt like a truck was driving forward. And I went up for the rebound... And I had the rebound. Believe me, I had the rebound. And these two big hands just went, almost squeezed the air out of the ball. And then he just jammed it into the hoop. Now, it wasn't one of my finer hours. Um, That was a tough opponent. That was an enemy from without that we were having to battle. We did not win that game. I think we could have won the game, except that we had a problem on our team. Several of the players on the team were not happy to be there behind the curtain. They were tired of eating the food. They were missing their wives and children. They were grumbling and complaining. And as we played the game, I saw that they didn't really have their heart in the game at all. The game was close. We could have won the game. So really, the defeat, we came at the hands of the Russians But the real battle was within the camp. The real battle was within the camp. And so we see in Nehemiah 5, the same situation happens. They've taken care of the enemies from without. The wall has continued to build up. The wall is now as tall as probably those lights right there. It's built up. It's nine feet wide. It's two and a half miles around. They have got this wall rebuilt They have done some work. Now the problem is not so much without. The problem is within. We're going to look today at how to accomplish kingdom work in dealing with internal conflict biblically. Whether it's in our church, whether it's in our home, whatever the situation is, the enemy always is more effective within than without. There is nothing that threatens a vision more than strife from within the camp. 
James Montgomery Boyce made this comment, the most successful attacks upon the church have come not from unbelievers, but from those within, from people who have professed to know God and Jesus Christ. And J. Vernon McGee, a great Bible teacher from many years ago, made this comment. In the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was to join it. So we're going to see today the conflict from within. In the first five verses, there is a problem. We see that there's little food for the families. There, there's a time of famine. Everybody's been giving themselves to the work of the wall. And there's little food to be had. People are having to mortgage their property. They're losing their property. They're losing their homes because of the famine, because of the taxation. And they're losing their, their property because the Jews who are lending them money are lending them money with exorbitant interest. So they're literally being crushed by the famine. They're being crushed by trying to get the wall completed. They're out of resources and their fellow Jews are taking advantage of them. They're having to borrow money for the king's tax. And amazingly, in this first five verses, their children are actually being sold off into slavery to help pay for their debt. Now, what the four enemies that were around the camp couldn't accomplish, the nobles and the officials charging exorbitant interest had brought the work of the wall to a halt. Once you can't find food, once you watch your daughters being sold off into slavery, and your sons, who cares if you have a wall? What does it really matter in the end? And so this is the scenario. This shouldn't surprise us. We see Moses in his day, by the power of God, conquer Pharaoh, come out victorious with his people. Pharaoh was the most powerful king or emperor on the face of the planet at that time. And yet, the people of God murmured and complained. Aaron led the people off into false worship. And we, if you remember, even Aaron and Miriam at one point questioned why Moses is the only prophet here. Aren't we prophets as well? So even within his own family, people rose up to be opposition against him. Jesus was opposed by the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And he was able to deal with all those. But his own disciple, Simon Peter, said, you don't have to go to the cross. That's not a good plan. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And we see Judas, who for 30 pieces of silver betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. These men who, exact, who exacted exorbitant interest we're thinking of themselves. It was a great opportunity to make a lot of money. They weren't thinking about the kingdom. They weren't thinking about their fellow Jews in this scenario. 
And they had forgotten, if they, if they did forget, God's commands. In Deuteronomy 23, we read the following in verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. God's command is real simple. Among your own people, you're not going to charge interest. You're going to lend but not charge interest. Foreigners, you can lend with interest, but not with your own people because you're a different community. Something has happened to you that makes you different. You've received something from me that should make you different. I set you free from captivity in Egypt. That should change the way you deal with my people. In Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, we read, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Notice the impetus here. He's not just giving a command with no context. Just don't charge interest. He's saying the reason you don't charge interest is because I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I purchased you. I set you free. I gave you this land. I didn't even charge you for the land. I've given you this land. I've been gracious and generous to you. Be gracious and generous to your fellow Israelites. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, we all get real quickly into the commands, don't we? In Exodus 20. And we become very eager to obey all those commands. But look how he prefaces the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, since I've done this, you are to follow those commands. You should have no other God before me. You should not take my name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath holy. Children should honor their father and mother. You should not steal or murder or commit adultery or do all of these things. Why? Because I'm a gracious God who has been gracious to you. How dare you take my gracious gift of freedom from Egypt and a promised land and then treat your fellow Israelites in a different way. All of God's commands flow from who he is. And he calls us to obey them based upon who he is 
and what he's done for us. When we detach God from the commands, we get into works righteousness real fast. There was a thing in the schools for a while where it was character first and we tried to build character into kids and you just got to learn character. But it was detached from God. All you're teaching people to do in that situation is be little Pharisees, striving to establish their own righteousness. God's commands are not separated from who he is or what he's done. And we're going to see that more as we get into the passage. So this is the situation. It's crisis mode. It's such a crisis that the, that the people are rising up and crying out against their brothers. They don't have food to eat. Their children are going off into slavery. Now we should be able to relate with this. We've all heard the story of Valley Forge, right? It was a really bad time. But do we understand why Valley Forge was such a bad time? The circumstances in Nehemiah 5 are very much akin to the American Revolution. The Continental Army suffered horribly the winter at Valley Forge. Clothes were threadbare and blankets were so rare that soldiers sometimes sat up all night rather than go to sleep and freeze to death. Lafayette saw soldiers there whose legs were frozen black. Obviously, they had to have their legs amputated. The trouble was not the severe winter, for it was a relatively mild winter in regards to what Pennsylvania is used to. But soldiers went hungry because nearby farmers preferred to sell to the British in Philadelphia for hard cash. If you'll remember, the Continental Congress got in such trouble, they were just printing money, printing money, printing money, to the point that the money had no value. So the farmers, instead of even taking care of their own soldiers and, and feeding them and taking whatever the useless money was to provide them with food, they wouldn't sell food to these men because their money was of no, no value. They took and sold bread and food to the British. The army had no clothes because merchants in Boston refused more to move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from 1,000 to 1,800%. Why do they do it? Looking out for number one. I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to take care of myself. That's what it's all about here. Forget the American Revolution. Forget the battle that's raging. And this is exactly what the, the nobles and the officials were doing here. Well, this required a biblical response. So we see the attack from within, from the selfishness of the officials and the nobles. Now we see, second, a biblical response. Look at what Nehemiah says. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. A lot within the church was, oh, Nehemiah, now that's a sin to get angry. You shouldn't do that. You know, the Bible says thou shalt not get angry. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in your anger, do not what? Sin. May I suggest to you that a lot of times in the church, there's some things we need to be angry about that we're not angry about. 
We should be angry about children being aborted. We should be angry about sex trafficking. We should be angry about a lot of things. And that anger, by God's grace, should move us to action. Nehemiah was not just angry, he was very angry at what he had heard from their outcry and the words. So notice what he does. We first have righteous indignation. We see this with Jesus in Mark chapter 3. If you'll turn there real quickly. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is dealing with a man with a shriveled hand. It's on the Sabbath. That's a problem because the Pharisees said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath or do anything like that. So here he is in Mark chapter 3, look at verse 4, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he, Jesus, looked around at them with what? Anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out the hand and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus was angry at the hardness of their heart and the wickedness that they would not even think it was appropriate to this man with shriveled hand to have it healed on the Sabbath. He was also angry when he went into the temple and saw people profiting off of the temple sale of animals and turning the house of God from a house of prayer into a house of merchandise. Moses was angry too. Remember he came off the mountain And he looked down and Aaron had created this golden calf and they were dancing and prostituting themselves around this calf and and Moses was angry. And then he got really angry and he threw the tablets down. Moses didn't do a good job of being angry and not sinning. He got angry and he went too far. Was he right to be angry? He sure was. Here were these people dedicated to God who were worshiping a false god He should have been angry, and he was. So it's not a sin to be angry, especially if God's law or God's people are being hurt by the sin of other people. We have a right to be angry, and then look what what Nehemiah does. He first has righteous indignation. Next, he has thoughtful contemplation. I took counsel with myself. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Okay, self, come over here. We're going to have a little council session. We're going to talk about this. So he did what? He thoughtfully contemplated the next step. He didn't just fly out the handle and get off into sin. Because when you do that, then the person who sinned doesn't see their sin anymore. They see your what? They see your sin, right? Parents, we understand this, don't we? Our children sin, and because we fly out the handle and sin then it all gets confusing where the sin started and how we deal with the sin, right? So in this situation, he thoughtfully contemplates his action. 
So he's angry, but he's going to make a biblical decision on how to deal with it. His choice, three, is direct confrontation. He is going to go right to these men, and he does. He said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. So he comes to them, it seems to be in private, to confront them on this. There's no answer that they were persuaded by it. So he assembles a group of, a large assembly, and he confronts them in public. So first he directly confronts them privately, then he directly confronts them in public. And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So we're rescuing these brothers from captivity in Persia now, bringing them back to Israel and you, because of your exorbitant interests, are selling them back into slavery. This should not be. Notice their response. They had nothing to say. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. It's not right. Why is it not right? Because God's clearly commanded how you're to treat your brothers. That's back in Leviticus. That's back in Exodus. That's back in Deuteronomy. Isn't that kind of outdated stuff, God? No, it's not outdated. It applies. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? What was the officials and nobles' problem? They had no fear of God. They had no, they had no reverence for God. They had no appreciation for what God had done for the people. They didn't appreciate the fact that God was rescuing them from captivity again and bringing them back to the land again to start over again because of their sin the last time. They don't appreciate that. And they're simply going to take advantage of their brothers and sisters. They're not conscious of what God has done. You and I sin when we cease being conscious of what God has done. That's why we sin. We lose sight of what he's done for us. And then it all becomes about me and then I have a great plan for my life that involves trampling on other people in some way, shape, or form to get what I want. It was wrong for them to lend in with interest. It was wrong for them to put their fellow Jews in slavery. The other thing Nehemiah is concerned about is not only they don't fear God, but they're a horrible witness to those around. They've had to deal with all their enemies. Now their enemies are watching them tear each other apart. And Nehemiah said, this is not good. God's reputation is on the line here. Notice he, in verse 11, he gives clear steps of repentance. This isn't just a preference. This isn't just a business practice that's okay and they shouldn't probably be doing it. This is sin. He's not just dealing with these people about preferences. He's dealing with them about their sin. 
And in verse 11, this is what he tells them. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Repent when? Today. What are you supposed to do? Return everything you did, took you weren't supposed to be taking in the first place. Return it all back to them. Now remember, these men are standing here and they're before the whole assembly. As Nehemiah confronts them. And look what they say. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Praise God. What a blessing. These men got confronted before the whole assembly and they repented. As is unfortunately often not the case, a lot of times in the church or in the assembly when people are confronting their sin, they end up just saying bye. And they go. That's normal operating procedure. These people repented and were willing to do what they said. Look what Nehemiah does next. Because we all know that our words can sometimes not have any value, right? So notice what he says. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Bring the priests in right quick. These people are going to take an oath before the entire assembly that they're not going to do this anymore. In other words, you're accountable before who? God. You can tell the people all day long what you're going to do. You're accountable before God. And we're going to make sure you understand that because the, we're going to bring the priest in. And you're going to take your oath there. And then he doesn't stop there. Verse 14. He gives them a strong admonition. If anyone doesn't keep this promise. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. He shakes out his robe and says, God will do that to you. And God already told him that in Leviticus, remember? If you want me to bless the work of your hands, you will treat your fellow Israelites this way. Nehemiah had some guts. He wasn't taking on the poor people who had no power. He was taking on the nobles and the officials who very easily could have turned on him and turned the ship. He took on the power brokers. But the zeal of the Lord, his passion for God's glory, trumped everything else. And notice what the assembly says. And all the assembly said, amen, and pray, and it broke out into a worship time. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. There was revival, there was reconciliation. They resolved this internal conflict. This is an incredible picture of what can happen when people are confronted biblically with the truth, and they repent, and they're focused more on God than themselves, and they turn back in the right way. It brings restoration. The, the building project is on. Back to finishing the wall. Nehemiah could have just said, hey, you know, I can't really deal with this right now. We've got to get the wall done. He didn't do that. 
He knew it was critical that they deal with this. Because it doesn't in the end matter if you have a wall around the city, if your city is split apart in strife. So we see the attack from within. We see the biblical response of Nehemiah. And finally, we see a powerful example of generosity. How could Nehemiah look these men down and confront them in their sin? Because he was not doing what they were doing. He didn't have a log in his own eye while he's trying to tell them not to do X, Y, and Z. He is following what he's commanding them to do. He was a man of integrity. So here we are now. Verse 14. More from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Here we see an incredible example in the life of Nehemiah. What was his focus? His focus was on the Lord. And because his focus was on the Lord and what the Lord had done, he could in like manner respond to the people. Again, let's not lose sight of it. It's what God has done and who he is that we must focus on. And from that comes action that is appropriate. He sets an example in denial of privileges, his right to position and power. He had the right to tax the people and have a huge spread on his table every day. That was a privilege that he had. But he knew the people were under a heavy load. And he cared about the people. And he cared about his God. Which is exactly opposite to the nobles and the officials. They cared about themselves. They didn't care about God. And they didn't care about the people who were being crushed under what they were doing. Notice, he had all the privilege to use the wealth any way he wanted. And he was a man of means. And yet, he chose to forfeit that privilege because he loved God and because he loved the people. Secondly, notice he set an example in labor. He just doesn't sit up in the palace calling out commands. In verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So his entire entourage was involved in the work on the wall. And oh, it would have been great because of the because of the economy and all that was going on, there was land I'm sure he could have picked up so cheap 
and he could have built an incredible little empire for himself. But notice what he did. He didn't even buy land. He didn't take advantage of the situation. He would rather have been giving than to in what? Receiving. He set an example in generosity. Verse 17 and 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense? Key words there, at my expense. For each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Wow, he was feeding a crew. He was putting it on, wasn't he? It'd be one thing if it was just he and his wife and a couple of kids kind of taking it, you know, kind of going to McDonald's every day. Oh, they, had a, they had a banquet going on and it came out of his own expense. Notice he set an example in caring for the lowly. He was concerned about the load on the people. And he was moved to compassion through verses 1 through 5. He cared about people. And he dealt with them appropriately. He set an example of having God as his audience. Look at the very last verse. Remember... For my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. What he's not saying here is, now I'm acceptable to you because of my great sacrifice. Look at all my good deeds and and now accept me, God. He's simply saying, I've done all this because of you because of what you've done for me. And I know in the end, you will be the one who rewards me, not the people that I've helped out along the way. Kind of reminds you of Matthew 6, right? Praying in secret and fasting in secret, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. Nehemiah had God as an audience. He was the one he cared about. He understood that God was moving things to bring Israel back together again. He was bringing them out of the captivity one more time. He was a good and gracious God. And as he focused on God, he naturally responded the way he'd been treated. He committed himself to get the wall completed whether it was external conflict or internal conflict, he was committed to finishing the work on the wall. And he didn't let things distract him. Are we more like Nehemiah? Or are we more like the nobles and the officials who are busy about our own kingdom? And our own agenda. And really, 
The kingdom of God just is kind of a peripheral thing that we're concerned about. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It's really a matter of the heart, isn't it? Is your life more about your own agenda? And the things of God just kind of get left to the side? Or is your life really about God? Is it really about the people who are hurting, who need to be helped? Who need to hear the gospel of Jesus? Who need to be discipled in God's ways? Because compared to the world, we're all rich. We're all very rich people. How much of what we receive do we spend on ourselves? And how much of what we receive do we, do we give out to others? And why even do that? Why is, there, why is generosity even important anyway? I mean, you're not going to be as rich as if you keep it all to yourself. To quote a seventh grader who asked me that question one time. And the answer is, there's no good answer. You're right, if I hang on to more of what I get, I'm going to be richer than the other person, right? It all doesn't make any sense mathematically unless you understand God. Unless you understand that generosity doesn't come just from your own good heart, it comes because of who God is and God's generosity. Nehemiah is a picture of Christ. He had a privileged position as cupbearer in the kingdom. And he left that to go back to a broken down Israel. The walls are falling down. And he didn't come just to command. He came to serve and to carry the load of getting the work done. May I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, in building the wall of salvation carried the biggest load. He came from glory. He became a man. He completely obeyed the law of God in every way to which he was above reproach. And he cared for those who were heavily burdened by sin. And he was willing to let go of all of his riches, even his very life. Nehemiah did not do that. Jesus let go of his very life to purchase for you something you could never purchase on your own. And for you and I to become generous people We've got to focus on Jesus and the gospel and what we've been given. If we just focus on people who have more than we do, we're always going to be discontent. We're never going to have anything to give to anybody because look at us compared to so-and-so. But if we focus on Jesus and what he has done, giving us what we never could give ourselves. Not giving us what we deserved. 
We deserved his wrath. We deserved his judgment for our sin. He gave us his righteousness. Cannot be purchased by you in any way, shape, or form. Your attendance at church, your giving at church, all the good acts you do in no way purchase your salvation. Because you were in a hole super deep. Jesus labored. He came among us. He lived among us. And then he drank the cup that God had for him. How do we become like Nehemiah? Just look at his character qualities and try to copy those? No. No, 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 no. We focus on Jesus. We focus on what he has done. And as we focus on him and what he has done, he changes us. And we find ourselves being willing to labor for someone else and for life to be more about other people than it is about ourselves. And we find ourselves opening our wallet and helping in gospel work and gospel ministry and in people who need help. We are there because it's not about us anymore. It's about Christ and his kingdom and his work. To quote the psalm writer, the songwriter, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Nehemiah, though he never saw Jesus, understood the generosity of God. And he understood the salvation of God. And it was that vision of God that so compelled him to do what he did for the people of Israel in the rebuilding of the wall. If you and I want to change, it's not about trying harder. It's about focusing on Jesus and the gospel that we've received and realizing that you are loved, whether you've had a great week or whether you haven't. I mean, how petty, how petty do you think God is that your good week now lets you be accepted by God? You really don't know how deep you were in, do you? And as we enjoy the gospel and enjoy Jesus and fellowship with him, and unwrap the gospel gift every day more and more as we read the word and we understand more and more the generosity and the love of God, we will be changed. We will be changed. Remember back to Colossians 3, he says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Some of us are on a performance treadmill We've trusted Jesus, that's the gospel. Now I'm through with the gospel. Now it's time for me to work really hard to be a good Christian. You just threw away the one thing that would help you grow to be a, a solid Christian. 
The gospel is not just for salvation. The gospel is for sanctification. And all of us, including the leadership of this church, needs to understand it more and more and more. That we can be changed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're grateful for your word, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And Lord, you are a gracious God who is now setting this people, Israel, free from slavery twice. First from Egypt, now from Persia. You have been so generous to this people. And we see the example of the selfishness of this people. And yet you, you've painted us a picture with Nehemiah of a beautiful picture of Christ. Father, I pray that this Christmas would not just be another Christmas, but that you would ignite within us a desire to understand the gospel more, to understand the gift you've given us that not only brings justification, but also fuels our sanctification in becoming like you. Oh, Father, help us become more and more imitators of you. Thank you for your generosity to us. May we be generous to those around us. For your name, for your glory, for your kingdom. Amen.